0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the historic day in the House of Representatives for all the wrong reasons. As for the first time, a speaker was dismissed and the chair vacated in a display of bitter infighting amongst Republicans between right-wing conservatives and far-right insurrectionists, led by an ambitious brat, Matt Gates who clearly hates Kevin McCarthy. Joining us is John Lawrence, a visiting professor at the University of California, Washington Center, who worked in the House of Representatives for 38 years and served as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's chief of staff for eight years. His latest book is Arc of Power, Inside Nancy Pelosi's Speakership, 2005 to 2010. Then we'll look further into today's fratricide in the House as the Democrats voted with the Freedom Caucus rebels 216 to 210 to remove McCarthy from the Speakership. Joining us is Thomas Kahn, who worked in the Congress for 33 years where he served as Staff Director and Chief Counsel of the House Budget Committee and played a critical role in a number of budget negotiations including Simpson-Bowles, the Biden Talks, the Super Committee, the successful balanced budget agreement of 1997 and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. He is a fellow at the Centre for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University. Then we'll examine the UN plan to deploy a force of 1,000 police from Kenya to free the Haitian people from gangs who have all but taken over the country in collusion with members of the Haitian police. Joining us is Gary Pierre-Pierre, a Haitian-born Pulitzer Prize-winning multimedia and entrepreneurial journalist who left the New York Times in 1999 to launch the Haitian Times, a New York-based English-language weekly publication serving the Haitian diaspora. He is a co-founder of the City University of New York Centre for Community and Ethnic Media. Then finally we'll look into the growing tensions between Canada and India following Prime Minister Trudeau's charge that Indian agents assassinated a Sikh activist on Canadian soil. Joining us is Dr. Sumit Ganguly, who holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University in Bloomington. His books include India Since 1980, India, Pakistan and the Bomb, Debating Nuclear Stability in South Asia. And his latest book is the Oxford Handbook of India's National Security. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now, John Lawrence, who's a visiting professor at the University of California Washington Center, who worked in the House of Representatives for 38 years and served as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Chief of Staff for eight years. His latest book is Arc of Power, Inside Nancy Pelosi's Speakership, 2005 to 2010. Welcome to Background Briefing, John Lawrence.
1: Thank you, Ian. It's good to be with you.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, John. And for a veteran of the House, uh, watching what happened today must have been both sad and embarrassing in a way. I mean, you work for Nancy Pelosi. She had a pretty thin majority in the last go round, like McCarthy has, yet she got an awful lot accomplished. I noticed uh, she wasn't there today. What, What was that about?
1: I think that she was uh, back in California for sen- uh, Senator Feinstein's funeral. Was my understanding, and that's the reason for her uh, for her absence. Uh, as you know, she uh, had urged that all Democrats follow the lead of the new Democratic leader, uh, Hakeem Jeffries. He did send out a letter earlier today urging all Democrats uh, to vote uh, in, uh, in opposition to. Uh, I'm sorry, in favor of vacating the chair, and that's what every Democrat did. So I think she knew that her absence would not affect the outcome today.
0: And the final vote uh, was 216 to 210. Yes. So my understanding, though, one of the main reasons why the Democrats did not support McCarthy was what he said on Sunday on the CBS show Face the Nation, where he just lied to Margaret Brennan by saying that it was the Democrats who took the country to the brink of of shutting down the government. And and Margaret Brennan laughed at his, into his face and said, no, it was the, the Democrats who voted to keep the government open. I mean, why did McCarthy make such a ball-faced lie? Has he been spending too much time with Donald Trump?
1: Well, you've certainly seen that that Speaker uh, McCarthy has been very obedient to uh, former President Trump. Uh, he initially, on January the sixth, had been very condemnatory of uh, the rioters who were endangering uh, his fellow uh, his fellow members of Congress uh, and and the Vice President. And then, after a lecture from uh, President Trump, he turned around and uh, and has followed Trump. Uh, almost without exception, uh, last week, of course, he uh, defied President Trump, who wanted to shut down the government, and uh, he reached an agreement with Democrats on a continuing resolution. I think that was the the last straw uh, for the far right wing uh, members of of his own caucus. But you know, Ian, it's important to remember that uh, number one, Democrats had no obligation to support Kevin McCarthy. They opposed him in January. They had their own candidate for speaker. And uh, Speaker McCarthy repeatedly lied to the Democrats. He said that he would have uh, a – he changed House rules, uh, for example, to give 72 hours to review legislation. He, He violated that. He reached an agreement in May on the debt ceiling. He violated that. Uh, he said he would continue to support uh, Ukraine assistance. He violated that. So I think for a lot of Democrats, uh, they rightly feel, and this is this is a matter of, of standard practice in the House, that each party is responsible for selecting the speaker uh, of their own party. And uh, it's not for the Democrats to put their hand on the scale and determine which speaker that should be for the Republican Party. The Republicans are going to have to have a caucus or a conference meeting and they're going to have to decide who's the right person. Uh, Maybe that's Kevin McCarthy again, but my guess is it's probably going to be somebody else, but you know, here's the problem, whoever it is, they're going to face the exact same set of problems that Kevin McCarthy is. They are going to have to sign a pledge of obedience to the far right, whose votes they need to pass legislation in the house. But then they're going to have to turn around and make deals with the Democrats in the Senate and with President Biden. So whoever it is, it's just like Paul Ryan replacing John Boehner. You can't run away from reality. And the reality is in divided government, you have to compromise. And the group that is responsible and solely responsible for McCarthy's being thrown out as speaker is a group that never wants to compromise.
0: When you say that McCarthy lied to the Democrats, most of our audience probably think, well, politicians lie. But it's my understanding that the level that you're talking about, where deals are made, and the level that you worked at as the chief of staff for Nancy Pelosi, your word is your bond, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. 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 I mean, I realize everybody says politicians lie. And I understand with that. They, they mean the politicians don't do what they say they're going to do in campaigns. Well, of course, it's different what you say in a campaign and what you do when you're in office, because the campaign, you don't have to check it with anybody else. But yes, no, you're absolutely right. In in a in a negotiation uh, with your peers, uh, there's a handshake, as there was in uh, in May on the debt ceiling numbers, to then come in a few weeks later. And say, oh no, we're going to have to have a 20% cut beyond those numbers, or the Republicans will not sign off on a on a continuing resolution. That's the kind of affront that uh, is very difficult to recover from. Uh, why would Democrats make any deal to keep Speaker McCarthy in office, so that he can do exactly the same thing again, and that is sell them out in order to try to accommodate this? Uh, extreme faction in his own caucus, they have to have a meeting with themselves. Democrats cannot negotiate who the Republicans should have as speaker. Uh, as you mentioned, and it's very important for people to keep in mind, this is not an issue that it's a narrow margin. Nancy Pelosi had a margin of four votes, and she passed some of the most significant legislation in the last 25 years. It's a problem that Republicans are a party that is a, that is at war with itself, and has a significant faction that is not troubled by the notion of congressional failure or government failure. In fact, they welcome it because they disdain government and they have no legislative agenda for the American people. And and that's a problem Democrats cannot solve for them.
0: And Matt Gates, of course, is leading the astring of McCarthy in, uh, in one of his speeches today he basically said mccarthy's lied to him and lied to him and lied to the freedom caucus and he listed the number of times so yeah it's probably that, true
1: yeah <laughs> that's, that's probably true i mean he's lied to democrats i don't know why they wouldn't think he lied to republicans as well and you know i just think this is these are the kinds of problems that uh that uh you know the, the republicans again have to sit down and have a conversation with themselves they cannot go to democrats how expect democrats to elect a republican speaker uh, and then uh th- know that 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 same person has misrepresented to them and intends to cut them out of of the negotiations it's it's an impossible situation it has never occurred in american history where one party has come to rescue the other party's speaker uh and of course it's never happened before in american history that the the chair of the house has been has been uh vacated it's it's we're in uncharted waters but the captain of the ship is a Republican party. The Democrats are the minority. There is nothing the Democrats can do here. This is up to the Republicans to figure out how they're going to run their own shop.
0: So presumably there'll be a Speaker pro tem in the
1: short term, right? And then there'll be another election. No, there's no provision in the House rules for a Speaker pro tem. Uh, so uh, the we don't know exactly what happens right now because uh, at the beginning, of a Congress when, as when Speaker McCarthy was elected, uh, there can be no business until there's a speaker elected, but there's now ongoing business of the house and the chair has been vacated. Uh, So I don't know whether or not somebody, I I don't really know. I mean, usually what happens in this situation is until there is a speaker, uh, there is a, um, until there is a speaker, the clerk of the house, is the, is the presiding officer. But you can't conduct any business until there is a speaker. So there's not going to be any business in the House until there's a speaker. There is no vice speaker. The speaker must be elected by the House of Representatives. And at this point, that chair is vacant.
0: So what's in this envelope that McCarthy's leaving behind? Do you know? It's apparently the name of somebody and what will they be doing?
1: I, that I don't. Uh, that that I don't know. But uh, it it probably translates to good luck
0: uh-huh. to whoever it is. But it, but yeah. it's not inconceivable that McCarthy could be reelected, right? I mean, at this point, it's pretty
1: hard to see why why any of these people who voted against him today right. uh, would then turn around and say, having gone through all of that. Uh, I want you to be the speaker again. I mean, they no. they've made some pretty strong statements against him, so I think his chances of of coming back are are, are quite slim. Certainly, no Democrats going to vote for him. So, I, I tend to think that's that's not a very likely likely scenario. But who that is, I, I the only thing I can guarantee you is this: there's a lot of a lot of people doing some very quick phone calls in the Republican conference right now to try to figure out what votes they can line up.
0: And the person who would get the most votes is Hakeem Jeffries, right?
1: <laughs> Which, well, if the vote were held today, but you, the yeah. rules of the house are that you must get a majority of those voting. So I, right. uh, unless uh, right. you know, it couldn't be. It wouldn't be unheard of. Uh, mm-hmm. Willie Brown in the state legislature in California got elected speaker by a Republican legislature. Uh, but in the House of Representatives, it's a little harder for me to, sure. see, to see that that actually taking place.
0: Right. So how long is the United States government? I mean, we just, we've just dodged a bullet of having the government shut down, but now we're going to have the the House shut down, right? I mean, in effect. Yes.
1: The House cannot conduct business without a speaker.
0: And how long is this going to take? Do we know?
1: Nope. Nope.
0: I mean, it took I, 15, I, I, 15 rounds of votes yeah. to get McCarthy in there in the first yeah. place, right?
1: Yeah, I really don't know. But here's, you know, the problem is that whoever it is, whoever gets to get puts together 218 Republican votes, is probably making the same kind of promises that Kevin McCarthy made in January and then could not keep as a matter of governing. I mean, that person cannot promise that they're not going to cut deals with the Democrats, can't promise that they're going to refuse to pass legislation that, uh, unless the Democrats make 100% concessions to them. That's what these people want. That's what Matt Gates wants. He wants no negotiations. Well, that's interesting, but that's not the world we live in. That's not the nature of the the congressional process. So no one can tell you how long this is going to go on. And, and, you know, for all I know, somebody will try to institute an interim speaker, but the rules of the House do not allow for an interim speaker that I'm aware of. I, I believe they have to have a separate vote now. And who knows when that takes place? I think we're, you know, we're in abeyance here until we until we get some better sense of where the Republican conference wants to go.
0: Right, but who would want the job then? I mean, given... uh, Well, if you remember when John
1: Boehner was... When John Boehner was forced out as Speaker, Paul Ryan did not want the job for exactly this reason and was forced into it anyway and, of course, was not very successful as Speaker uh, for exactly the reasons you're talking about. And that was with a Republican president. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, you're, you've put your finger on the problem. It's going to be very hard. I guarantee you ambition will win out and somebody will take the job, but whether they could be very successful or not, I think is another matter altogether.
0: And John, we're just learning now that the House clerk has announced that Representative Patrick McHenry is now the acting speaker. And this, of course, is following McCarthy having handpicked McHenry for the role when he was elected speaker in January, apparently. So there will be an acting speaker. So given that the Freedom Caucus, uh, most of whom voted, uh, I think there was like 21 voted to shut down the government, and this time around enough of them voted to get rid of McCarthy. And what I find extraordinary about that vote to keep the government open, it was all predicated upon taking money out for funds for Ukraine. And that was their number one priority. Well, they
1: had a lot of other issues. I think they, they if it hadn't been that, it would have been something else. They wanted uh, much bigger cuts in these, in the spending numbers than they were getting. But uh, I think they found it convenient to blame it on Ukraine, but I don't think that was really the only, the only reason.
0: So you don't think— You
1: know, they wanted deep, deep cuts. Right. So you well.
0: don't think there's like a pro-Putin caucus in the House?
1: No, oh, I think there is a pro-Putin caucus in the House, in the Republican conference. Yeah, there is, but I don't think that that's—I don't think that alone explains their opposition.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us here today, John Lawrence. Take care. Well- Thanks. And again, I've been speaking with John Lawrence, who's a visiting professor at the University of California, Washington Center, who worked in the House of Representatives for 38 years and served as House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's Chief of Staff for eight years. His latest book is Arc of Power, Inside Nancy Pelosi's Speakership, 2005 to 2010. We're going to take a brief station break, be back looking further into today's fratricide in the House as Democrats voted with the Freedom Caucus rebels 216 to 210 to remove Kevin McCarthy from the speakership. And joining us now is Thomas Kahn, who has worked in Congress for 33 years, where he served as a staff director and chief counsel on the House Budget Committee and played a critical role in a number of budget negotiations, including Simpson-Bowles, the Biden Talks, the Super Committee, the successful balanced budget agreement of 1997, and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. And he's a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Kahn.
2: Thank you. It's, it's always great to be back with
0: you. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Tom. And just reading your bio, I mean, you worked on stuff that got done and that was important, yes. uh, affordable health care for the American people compared to, I mean, the defense of McCarthy today from his allies, which are, of course, the majority of the Republican conference because um, he's being uh, you know, unseated, which it looks like, by a very small minority. But when they talk about his great accomplishments, it's just like, you've got to be kidding. you know. Yes. So I see a contrast between when you're working in the, in the House and what's going on with the McCarthy era is night and day. You know, you guys were trying to make things happen and make the country better. This Republican House is all about tearing each other apart and tearing the country down.
2: Well, I, I think you nailed it. Um, What we're seeing right now is to quote um, uh, Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries is we're watching a House Republican civil war and we're watching the extreme MAGA Republicans take control of the House from the far right MAGA Republicans. And, you know, to your point about really not accomplishing anything, um, these people who are in charge, they don't really believe in the fundamentals of governing. For example, they don't believe in compromise. Compromise is, is a core which goes all the way back to the founding of the nation, um, they are, many of them, they're happy to see government fail because they don't believe in the basic services government provides, even funding the FBI, even funding our troops. Um, So it's really a sad day for the House of Representatives, uh, and it's an embarrassment. And once again, they are showing that they're incapable of governing, uh, and their attempts to govern are really tearing themselves apart.
0: So um, McCarthy's allies tried to vote to block Matt Gates's right. efforts. And the vote yeah. was 208 to 218 against blocking the efforts to oust McCarthy. And the right. Democrats provided most of the votes, and there were 11 Republicans who, along with the Democrats, making up the 218 to 208. And that's pretty much the way it is. And my understanding is that... What really upset the Democrats and why they don't want to help McCarthy out, and they basically saying this is a Republican thing. You guys handle it. You, you know, it's your problem. You made it, made it a problem. You have to solve it. But my understanding is that what really, really irritated uh, the Democratic Caucus was McCarthy's appearance on CBS uh, Face the Nation on Sunday, where he blamed the Democrats for the country going to the brink of shutting down the government. When, and in fact, the moderator, Margaret Brennan, just laughed at him in his face because it was an absurd statement. It was after all the Democrats, she pointed out, who provided the votes in order to stop the shutdown of the government. So why does McCarthy lie in that kind of way? Has he been infected by his association with Trump? I mean, that clearly is what crossed the Rubicon for a lot of Democrats, that that ball faced gratuitous
2: lie. Well, you know, McCarthy McCarthy thinks only about what's going to get him through the next few hours and maybe through the next day. Uh, he doesn't really even seem to have any grand plan or strategic plan or goals in terms of principles. I mean, his principle, it appears to be, is to be in get in an office and stay in office. And he has done anything and everything he can to just get through the next day. You know, th- after all, this is somebody who, let's go back to the January 6th and days after that. And he was uh, on a tape recording saying that what Trump was doing was outrageous and Trump had to go. He then, uh, a few days later, he went down to, to Mar-a-Lago to, uh, to uh, genuflect um, at the altar of, of uh, uh, Donald Trump. He then denied making these comments about Trump having to go and having to resign until the recordings came out. He discredited the January 6th um, uh, committee, impe- uh, committee investigation. He started an impeachment into uh, President Biden, but he doesn't know and they don't know what impeachable offenses he's he's committed. They have no idea. Uh, they say they'll find it once they do the investigation. Um, and he broke a bipartisan spending deal um, right out of the gate. And so, you know, it's, it's very sad. I mean, this, this, he has not shown leadership in any manner. Uh, and meanwhile, as I said before, the House Republicans are, have shown they're just not capable of governing. And, um, uh, and I'm afraid that we're going to just see a continuation of this stalemate. Um, and I, I'm sorry to say this, but I expect they're going to be, more continuing resolutions and, and probably more, some shutdowns, and, and we're just going to continue like this because whether McCarthy eventually is able to hold on to his speakership or somebody else takes his position, takes that slot, uh, I think the problems will remain the same, that they are so divided, fighting against each other uh, between the extreme right and the far extreme right.
0: Well, but if yes. they take another vote it's pretty likely, isn't it, that, that McCarthy would win most of the, the votes, right? So he could come back on the next, once they unseat him, he can come back, can't he? He certainly
2: could. I mean, that's certainly one, one possibility. Um, on the other hand, it's hard to imagine how the 5 or 10 or 11 Republicans who so far appear to be wanting to unseat him, it's hard to see how they are going to come around and eventually vote to elect him again. Um, it's certainly more than possible. Maybe he can cut, try to cut another deal with them. Although the, the bitterness, if you watch the House floor the debate, the bitterness and the anger um, being launched by one Republican against another, these are not Republicans against Democrats or vice versa. These are Republicans attacking each other in the most personal terms. So it, it, it's hard to imagine them coming back together. So they'll probably, but it could happen. But they're more likely, in my opinion, there'll be some other candidate. And um, how long will it take to get that person elected? You know, we watched a very sad uh, picture on the House floor back in January when it took 15 votes by the House of Representatives finally for Kevin McCarthy to get elected. Um, so will it take 15 more votes? Will it take more or take less? It's hard to know. What we can be sure of is more bitter internal fighting between the far right and the extreme far right
0: but it's unlikely that anybody from Matt Gates's camp may they may be nominated but they'd never be voted on as a speaker right so Yeah,
3: that's
2: right.
0: yeah. so it's going to be some kind of compromise candidate from yeah. within within the majority
2: That's correct and it could be yeah. somebody you know I mean there 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 are certainly uh, There are no shortage, I'm sure, of House Republicans who who would like to become speaker. Um, You know, the majority leader, Steve Scalise, potentially, although, you know, I'm I'm sorry to say he has some health challenges. Uh, You know, maybe Tom Emmer, or it could be um, uh, uh, McHenry from North Carolina. It could be, you know, Jim Jordan. I mean, there are a lot of people who, who would seek that position. Whether they are able to hold... Hold on 218 votes is, is another question. You know, the same problem is facing, um, uh, uh McCarthy that, that is the reason why John Boehner, the last, or the second to last house Republican speaker was essentially thrown out. And it's the reason why, why Paul Ryan, um, barely clung to the speakership. Um, you have a Republican party that is so torn under and fighting, um, between the right and the far right, and uh, and so you essentially have stalemate. But of course, it's much worse in this case, but they have only a five-seat majority. But you know, it's an important thing to remember. A lot of people point to this five-seat majority and say, well, anybody would have problems governing the House with a five-seat majority. It shouldn't be forgotten that just a few months ago, Nancy Pelosi was Speaker of the House and she had essentially a five-seat majority, roughly, and she was able to pass landmark, landmark legislation over and over again so it's not that number so much as the house republicans that's the problem
0: so this small group led by matt gates but he's a part of the house yeah. freedom caucus and all of the 11 that are voted against mccarthy are from that same caucus and they managed to strip out aid to ukraine out of the continuing resolution that finally kept yep. the government open, which the Democrats f- voted for, even though McCarthy said that they, d- they weren't helpful, which is probably one of the reasons why the Democrats are so annoyed with him. I'm interested in trying to figure out why there is a pro-Putin caucus in the House and to a less extent in the Senate with J.D. Vance and Rand Paul. Do you have any, any thoughts about that? Because why is that the number one priority? of these, this minority to cut uh, aid for Ukraine? Why are they prepared to shut down the entire government just to help out Vladimir Putin?
2: Well, boy, that's a great question. And I tell you, it's you put your finger on something that I find among the most offensive and disturbing um, aspects of, of where some of these far-right House Republican policies go. Um, you know, uh, we have a situation in Ukraine where with, with the valued people of that country are simply fighting for their own independence, their freedom, against one of the most authoritarian, authoritarian dictators we've seen in, 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 in decades. And, um, and for them to want to strip that money out, you know, it's interesting. What, what, you ask, you put your finger on a very important question. And I, th- I guess there are probably at least two reasons. Um, one is a very narrow view about um, I don't want to spend any money anywhere well, I don't want to spend any money anywhere, period. I mean, they don't like the idea of spending money um, on anything. Um, and so, you know, an extra $2 billion to go to Ukraine um, is, is something that's disturbing to them. I mean, I guess for some of them, for their constituents back home, the idea of spending money abroad is something that, that's very disturbing, even though much of the money which we sent to Ukraine actually is spent in the United States on armaments here, which we send over there. And then finally... I think that there are certain aspects of, of Vladimir Putin and his autocracy and his, his uh, nationalist uh, Christian theology that I think appeals to certain elements of them. And I, I, you know, and I can't, I'm not going to attribute that to any particular member of the house, but clearly if you, you know, you read right-wing literature, um, if you listen to Tucker Carlson, for example, you know, Putin is somebody that, that they find a, um, a sympathetic character, um, And so I think it's a combination
0: of things. So back to a subsequent vote then, Tom, on uh, who could replace McCarthy. It would seem that the one person who has the most votes right out of the gate is Hakeem Jeffries, right?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. The Democrat.
0: I mean, that's how crazy it is.
2: He likes to say that there were... Uh, 14 votes in the House for Speaker, which he won, and he only lost the last one because, actually, if you look look at the numbers, he got more votes than anybody. Um, But uh, let's put it this way. Um, There's going to be another election next November. Um, There are about 30 uh, seats that are up for play, uh, and Democrats and Republicans are going to contest every single one of them. I think what this whole fight shows is the stakes that are involved for next November, not just for the presidential election, but for congressional. I think what we're seeing right now on the House floor is should be a message to the American people why the House of Representatives and the Senate are so critical and why what happens next November is going to have such a profound impact on the country. Um, and I think at that point... Let's, well, you know, um, I think there's a, 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 a certainly a decent chance Democrats will take a majority and that Hakeem Jeffries will become Speaker. So you think, think that, the, court-
0: you think that well, this embarrassing display of intermural fighting amongst the Republicans and the sort of pathetic rallying to McCarthy talking about his great achievements when they were so paltry – you know the parents' bill of rights and a couple of other things that they bring up, but almost 99% of of what they've so-called accomplished uh, has gone nowhere with the Senate. Nothing's gone into law much, right? I mean, no, it's a pretty no, that's no, right. They have no achievements, oh. but they're looking yeah. like idiots running with scissors, as one of them said, <laughs> accused Matt Gates of um, tearing each other apart. Do you think the the American public, as much as they are paying attention, will remember all
2: this uh, next November? Well, you know, if, I, if I'm an optimist, I'll say yes. Um, I'm, for better or for worse, the la- you know, in 2013, when the Republicans shut the government down, Democrats did not take the House in 2014. Um, I'd like to believe that the American people, if they want to see government working, you know, if they care about things like climate change, if they want to make sure the economy is is working and working for every American, if they believe in in protecting women's right to choice, um, that they're going to go out to the polls and they are going to vote for Democrats, um, and I, I hope that what's the spectacle is going on on the House floor and will will help to drive that, especially as they understand what the stakes are.
0: Well, Thomas Kahn, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you. I enjoyed it as always. Take care. You too. Yeah. There'll be interesting times as the Chinese curse goes.
0: <laughs> Indeed. And all the best. And again, I've been speaking with Thomas Kahn, who worked in the Congress for 33 years, where he served as a staff director and chief counsel for the House Budget Committee and played a critical role in a number of budget negotiations, including Simpson-Bowles, the Biden talks, the super committee, the successful balanced budget agreement of 1997, and the enactment of the Affordable Care Act. And he is a fellow at the Center for the Study of Congress and the Presidency at American University. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the UN plan to deploy a force of 1,000 police from Kenya to free the Haitian people from gangs who have all but taken over the country. But where are the clowns? Send in the clowns Just when I stopped opening doors Finally finding the one that I wanted
1: was yours, making my entrance
0: again with my usual
1: friends.
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Gary Pierre-Pierre, who is a Haitian-born Pulitzer Prize-winning multimedia and entrepreneurial journalist who left the New York Times in 1999 to launch the Haitian Times, a New York-based English-language weekly publication serving the Haitian diaspora. And he is the co-founder of the City University of New York Center for Community and Ethnic Media. Welcome to Background Briefing, Gary Pierre-Pierre.
3: Thank you, Ian, for having me.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, Gary, and uh, the United Nations Security Council on Monday authorised a foreign security mission to Haiti, and this will largely be from Kenya, police and military from Kenya. So you've seen this movie before, haven't you? What's your attitude, and more importantly, Gary, what is the attitude of the Haitian people towards another foreign army arriving on their shores?
3: This is my third rodeo, Ian, um, of, of this, watching this this play out. Um, you know, the reason we were here was that the other two, frankly, didn't do its purported job, which was to stabilize Haiti and uh, get it back to the democratic process. And what I'm saying that, what I'm hoping this time is that, you know, the, the United Nations... Learn from those previous debacles and 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 come away and bring something new to this mission, and make this the last mission. Obviously, in Haiti right now, because of what I've just said, the mi- feelings are mixed. On the one hand, something needs to be done. Uh, people have been living under really hellish conditions for four years now, and they need uh, uh, some respite. They just cannot anymore. On the other hand, if you're going to put some Band-Aid on this, then you know five years, ten years from now Ian, you and I would be having the same conversation about some some other led, uh, country-led mission going to help Haiti. Because what needs to be done is a serious nation building because that's what it, it takes. What has happened is in the last 25 years, the whole cadre of of, of, of elites, both political and, and private sector, have had a monopoly on everything and not really, and working in conjunction, in cahoot, if you will, with the international players to keep Haiti the way it is because it works for them. Because no matter what state Haiti is in, it, it, they make money. And it's about money and they're making a lot of it.
0: So the mission that's coming in terms of security assistance, Kenya has offered up a pledge of 1,000 police. The Bahamas have committed to 150. Jamaica and Antigua and Barbuda are also going to send some help. So this is not a military force per se. Is it capable of handling the gangs that have taken over the country?
3: Yes, it is, and the also remember they're going to be working alongside the Haitian National Police, and if the Haitian National Police force was not politicized and compromised by the gang, it would be able to handle the gangs. The problem with the Haitian National Police is that like, uh, what my sources are telling me on forty percent of that uh, of that force is either a sympathizer or outright member of these gangs. And so whenever they carry out missions, the gangs already know what's coming. It's basically, there's a, they become suicide missions, literally, where they get ambushed and killed. And so they've been unable to do that. So now what has been happening, the United Nation has been rooting out some of these cops, the corrupt ones, put them on the side, and then bringing outside help to carry out the mission that can be done. Because these gangs are good, Ian, at terrorizing the population, but I don't think they can really uh, 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 <clears throat> fight against a, a, a strong police force. And that's why you're not saying military. And, and And I am kind of optimistic, because I see that the United Nation is learning some lessons, even though I I, I, I said earlier, I was not skeptical, but you don't need 20,000 soldiers to deal with the situation that's just wasting money wasting resources you need a well organized um police force police and armed with intelligence which the US can provide very well easily
0: so there is some intelligence agencies or activities going on to know, in order to find out who the members of the Haitian police are that are compromised yes they, they have that capability and those members could be purged, and there's enough left of the Haitian police force to join in with the Kenyans in order to take care of the gangs.
3: Absolutely, I mean, they're, they're, and in fact, I mean, I have sources inside the police department who've told me, yeah, we can, but the problem is we we comp- we're and we they're able to, uh, and and the Canadians have provided um, <clears throat> intelligence help. Uh, they had a couple of spy plane fly over Haiti uh, several months back. And it was, you know, they had another uh, ship that rung around the Bay of Port au Prince. And so a lot of work has been going on. And so I'm skeptical, of course, but, you know, I'm, I'm optimist a bit on what I see so far. And we just hope that uh, they remain consistent, they, keep, they listen to uh, people on the ground. And, and, and do what's best for the Haitian people because they don't deserve this. And uh, it's just keep, uh, it, it, it's, it's really hard for, for folks to carry out their daily lives, uh, let alone, you know, plan for the future. But none of the police
0: forces that are coming in from Kenya and the Bahamas, uh, Jamaica and Antigua and Barbuda are. French-speaking. Is that a problem? They're all English-speaking. No,
3: because remember, Ian, they're going to be working uh, alongside the Haitian National Police. And really, in that population, you need Creole. French right. is not going to help you. And when you come in at these neighborhoods that are like the, you know, very uh, uh, inner city, what we describe in the U.S. as inner city. These are really people who, uh, unfortunately, they didn't go to school. You learn French in school, but Creole is the native language that you instinctively speak as Haitian. And French is learned language, so they don't need French. And and but they are be working with the Haitian counterpart uh, and to fix the linguistic uh, issue.
0: So, forgive me for being <laughs> speaking in a colonial way about the French and not recognizing that Creole is the real language. Oh, but,
3: no 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 problem, I mean you do know.
0: <laughs> Right. So, but in in terms of. The damage that's been done by these gangs, you can't escape though the responsibility, surely, of the government of Prime Minister Ariel Henry, which is hardly a legitimate government, right? And isn't well, that the problem that at the core, even if you get rid of the gangs, you still got a corrupt and unrepresentative government?
3: Well, the idea is so you get rid of the gang and you stabilise the country, and then then he is. Going to be accountable for holding elections. Oh, I, I hope that once you know whatever troop, uh, the, the troops. I'm sorry, the the officers land and start their mission. That uh, Yalambi yeah, uh, resign from the from the post, and we have a interim prime minister with some legitimacy who is able to uh, organize the elections and then slowly get the country back to to a path to democracy.
0: But that has eluded the country, right? For some reason or other. The United States in particular doesn't seem to want to have a government in Haiti that is truly representative of the Haitian
3: people. Because uh, whatever uh, interest in the United States' interest in Haiti is, it's, it's, it's not democratic. Uh, they don't want to respect the rule of the people. and I'm, That pains me to say something. As someone who is a naturalized American citizen, I'm an American by choice. Because I believe in the ideals of democracy and and, and uh, that we as Americans promote around the world. But when it comes to my uh, homeland uh, of Haiti, we seem to want to dictate who we want uh, as as leaders in Haiti. Uh, Michel Martelly was not duly elected president of Haiti, but yet we had four awful years of him. And then we went into Jovenel Moise's successor, which unfortunately, uh, sadly, got uh, assassinated. But he was awful as well. And now here we are with Ariel Henry, uh, 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 someone who the State Department is behind 100%. And that's why he's been able to stay in power, because Brian Nichols, uh, who is the uh, Undersecretary for uh, Western Hemisphere, um, as made it clear that's his man in Haiti.
0: Well, it's always been a mystery to me, Gary, why the U.S. backs these crooks forever and denies the Haitian people their democratic right to have leaders that they elect um, well, not that mystery. aren't corrupt. And on top of that, you've got this corrupt elite, right? These few families that own most of the country?
3: Yes, it's a toxic boo. Uh, but part of it is that sometimes, you know, in real politics, uh, the corrupt people are easily manipulated because, you know, they're corrupt. So some way they can do whatever uh, U.S. interest is. They could do the bidding. And and, and that's what you had in Martelli. But again, I'm an optimist at heart. What has been happening, and I don't know how closely you've watched the developments. I'm sure you haven't been following them as closely as I have. But is that um there's been a lot of real sanctions taking place uh, on on um, being imposed on these people the the elites both political and 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 business class and so it tells me that the international community the state department they've realized that these guys are the problem because they always see them as the 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 solution because these guys are a, a master manipulator they know very well how to uh, uh BS the um uh, the, the these diplomats and these other foreign workers who come to Haiti. They many of them went to school in the US, uh the some of the best schools, Columbia, University of Miami, you name it, and they 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 lived in the States for years. And so they have this language where they could make these diplomats feel like, oh, okay, that's my guy. He he understands us. He's one of us in many ways. And so they do business with them. And then these guys they're, they're con artists, they're con men knowing exactly the talk. And at the same time, they're lining their pockets and just selling the country out.
0: Well, Gary Pierre-Pierre, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it.
3: Anytime, Ian. My pleasure. Take care.
0: You too. And again, I've been speaking with Gary Pierre-Pierre, who's a Haitian-born Pulitzer Prize-winning multimedia and entrepreneurial journalist who left the New York Times in 1999 to launch the Haitian Times, a New York-based English-language weekly publication serving the Haitian diaspora. And he's the co-founder of the City University of New York Centre for Community and Ethnic Media. And joining us now Dr. Sumit Ganguly, who holds a Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University in Bloomington. His books include... India Since 1980, India, Pakistan, and the Bomb, Debating Nuclear Stability in South Asia, and his latest book is The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Sumit Ganguly. Thank you. So, Sumit, what's going on between India and Canada? There's obviously escalation uh, in terms of diplomats being, first of all, after Prime Minister Trudeau went before the Canadian Parliament and said that there was credible evidence that India was involved in the assassination of a Sikh activist in Vancouver. Then the head of the intelligence in the Indian embassy in Ottawa was asked to leave, and India reciprocated by kicking out, presumably, the head of Canadian intelligence in the embassy in New Delhi. But now... India has escalated and told Canada to remove 41 of its 62 diplomats. And in response, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau of Canada said on Tuesday that we are not looking to escalate. Uh, As I've said, we're going to be doing the work that matters in continuing to have a constructive relations with India. Now, does that mean that Modi is going to uh, be constructive? I mean, uh, who's driving this tension between the two countries?
4: I don't think Modi is going to uh, be particularly forthcoming at the moment uh, because I think first he wants to send a clear-cut message uh, to Canada um, uh, indicating that his patience is at an end with uh, six separatists uh, causing, uh, raising the issue of sex separatism with impunity in Canada. Second, there's a domestic audience, and domestically, his uh, defiance of Trudeau has played extremely well, including amongst members of the opposition who are opposed to Modi on a whole range of issues, but have closed ranks on this particular uh, question for the most part. In fact, some prominent uh, opposition leaders have come in support, uh, come out in support of Modi's Uh, position on this issue. So under these circumstances, I can't see Modi and his government uh, making nice to Canada any time in the foreseeable future.
0: So what then is going on with Modi and the idea that you would assassinate a foreign national? He was a Canadian, after all, on Canadian soil and somehow think you could get away with it? Because from my understanding, the intelligence that prompted Prime Minister Trudeau to go before the parliament and say there was credible evidence comes from the Five Eyes arrangement, uh, which is probably from Signal's intelligence, and it's probably pretty solid. So what is Modi doing having the RAW, the CIA of India, operating in Canada with a head squad?
4: I don't quite know. Uh, because the evidence isn't there in the public domain that Raw necessarily carried out uh, this attack. It's, uh, I'm speculating, but it's entirely possible that uh, uh, any number of criminal gangs uh, which uh, uh, operate in Canada um, uh, uh, could have been encouraged uh, uh, or incentivized uh, to uh, carry out this killing. Uh, but this is mere speculation on my part, since there is no evidence in the public domain that clearly implicates RAW. We can make that as a reasonable inference, given that there are public reports that the Five Eyes provided uh, intelligence of potential RAW involvement. So that's that is a possible inference, but we have no clear-cut evidence. The Canadians haven't provided the evidence uh, that RAW was actually involved. They have asserted this. And that's perfectly understandable, given that the Canadian uh, security and intelligence services do not want to compromise uh, sources and methods. Uh, that's a legitimate concern on their part. But on the other hand, as someone who is informed about uh, uh, the developments that have taken place following Niger's uh, killing, um, it's all, um, uh, all my information is based upon public sources. And nowhere in the public domain have I seen a shred of evidence that clearly implicates that Raw was involved. Nevertheless, it is possible to make that inference.
0: Well, but what is clear is that Sikh independence is a very sore spot in India, right? And, you know, first of all, you had the Air India plane in the 1980s leaving Canada that was blown up. Before 9-11, that was the worst um, number of casualties uh, in terms of blowing up a civilian airliner. And then you had the siege for the Golden Temple in 1984, And in response to that, the Sikh bodyguards of Prime Minister Indira Gandhi assassinated her. So is that what's driving the kind of nationalist support inside India, including with the Congress Party, the opposition party, in support of what Modi's doing? In
4: in considerable part, that's the case, because by the early 1990s, the Indian state had effectively broken the back of the Sikh insurgency. So within Punjab, where the insurgency arose in the first place, it really uh, had become a non-issue. But, Uh, A small segment of the Sikh community, whether in London, whether in parts of the United States, whether in Vancouver or in Toronto, have kept alive this dream of a separate Sikh homeland. And they have collected money. Some of them have connections with the underworld. Um, uh, Some of them are engaged in unsavory activities, including drug running into India. Um, uh, This does not mean to tar and feather the entire Sikh community worldwide. Far from it. But a fringe group within that community still harbors this chimera of a Sikh homeland. And the government of India obviously does not take kindly to it because it fears that this could again ignite an insurgency within India. And secondly, it has also played uh, this toughness towards uh, se- uh, secessionists abroad has also played well in terms of Indian electoral politics. So there, are, there is at one level a legitimate concern, at another level purely sort of naked electoral politics that are also at work.
0: But given that Modi is such a disaster in the minds of many, including myself, in terms of turning back Indian democracy, which has always been celebrated as the world's largest democracy, his authoritarian tendencies are being bolstered, are they not? I mean, the idea that this is making Modi more popular I find very troubling.
4: Um, it, it is uh, uh, troubling, especially given the backdrop of democratic backsliding uh, in India. Uh, on the other hand, in fairness, there is something as an analyst I must underscore that while I do not support targeted killing, if indeed this was one, the jury remains out on that, and I'm not about to adjudicate uh, the matter uh, on this show. Uh, but the flip side of this is successive Canadian governments have been utterly tone-deaf to India's concerns, and not just those raised by Modi. For decades, there has been the embers of six secessionism that have continued to burn in Canada. And the Canadian governments have used the fig leaf of free speech to allow these individuals to operate freely, knowing that some of them are deeply involved in criminal activity in Canada. And they have done this in large part because of electoral concerns of their own trudeau's fragile coalition would collapse today if if a left-wing sick party the new democratic party were to withdraw from that coalition and the, the, uh, the stonewalling of successive Canadian governments to the concerns that various governments long before Modi had raised with Canada is also an issue that we have to take into account. For example, the six who blew up the Emperor Kanishka, the Air India airliner leaving Toronto in 1985, killing over 300 people. Not a single individual was incarcerated. Um, uh, uh, one person was, but then was uh, uh, was let go for some flimsy legal reason. Um, also, two uh, uh, baggage handlers in Narita Airport were killed because of bombs placed there by secessionists. There has been no prosecution of these individuals who can all be traced back to Canada. So it's not as if that it's uh, simply Modi's jingoism that's driving all this. Uh, There's a certain duplicity and disingenuousness on the part of Trudeau's government and previous Canadian governments, who have been completely oblivious to India's concerns because of their own electoral compulsions.
0: I see. Well, Dr. Sumit Ganguly, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
4: Thank you for this opportunity.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Sumit Ganguly, who holds the Rabindranath Tagore Chair in Indian Cultures and Civilizations at Indiana University in Bloomington. His books include India since 1980, India, Pakistan and the Bomb, Debating Nuclear Stability in South Asia. And his latest book is The Oxford Handbook of India's National Security.